the letter of Yaakov, or Jacob, or James, or whatever you need to call it to get there, just get there. We'll be in chapter 4. We will not even finish chapter 4 tonight. It's only 17 verses. But it's 17 verses that takes us right into the heart of the letter. This has been called the heart of James, although it should have been called the heart of Yaakov. This is the heart of the letter. This this self-described bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ writes a letter that resounds with a deep passion. It's easy to miss that because perhaps you've been taught, as, as I was years ago, that this is a practical letter. Well, it is practical. There's all kinds of great one-liners in here to take home and to work on and to practice. And, and I had someone come up to me after first service on Sunday and say, Boy, okay, that wisdom, that list of things for wisdom, I'm going to go home and practice those right now. And I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. That's why I said second service, don't go home and practice these things. You go home and pray for the presence of the Spirit and let Him work these in you. Because it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that any of these uh, beautiful uh, traits of the wisdom that's from above, it's wisdom from above, it's not wisdom from our own generation or our own thinking or our our own ability. Well, this is a passionate letter. Yes, it's practical. Yes, there are all kinds of things we can draw out. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people approach this letter with that in mind that number one it's filled with little practical suggestions and number two it's for me Yaakov loves the church he loves the church show me love without feeling and I'll show you love that's detached show me a so called love that has no emotion and I will show you a love that is dry and empty just as faith without works is dead so love without passion is dead it's not real love now now love in terms of god's love agape love is not all about feeling it's about what you do but if you don't feel it how can you call it love if there's no emotion tied to it, no passion, no fervency, no, no ardor, how can you really call it love? It should move us. It should uh, stir us up. And when we talk about the love of God, we see two very strong characteristics. Oh, I'm sure we could come up with many, but the two that stand out more than any others, I believe, in the Scriptures are, first of all, the love of a husband spurned, which we see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. God crying out to Israel to return to Him and crying through heartache and pain and anguish and anger. A husband spurned. You're going to see that tonight in this letter. But we also hear the second passionate manifestation of the love of God in the pained plea of the man of sorrows. Husband spurned and the man of sorrows. Jesus was passionate. It wasn't sorrow for Himself, by the way. Make sure you get that clear in your understanding of Jesus as the man of sorrows. No, He wasn't sorrowful because He was bummed out and depressed. He was sorrowful for the people, for Israel, for the earth, for all of creation. Luke 19.41 says when He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it. 
Matthew tells us what he said. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing and you were unwilling. I think the most powerful representation I've ever seen in terms of like a movie version of that there was a movie that was made several years ago, and the guy playing Jesus is, is crying out the O Jerusalem and ends up on his knees, tears running down his face, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And it's a very passionate, moving scene. There's no passion in love. Is it love? It can't be. Spurned husband, man of sorrows, both reveal the feeling, the emotion, the passion of the love of God. Of course, Jesus said in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And I'll tell you this before we get going. Repentance is the response to the love of God. And repentance is not, well, I'm sorry. Repentance hurts. Repentance is an expression of a painful place. Well, tonight we come to, again, the heart of the letter, the most impassioned section of the letter of Yaakov. Again, applicable to the individual, sure, but remember, it is written with concern for the whole church. And if we miss that, if we lose that, then we sink into American Christianity, which is very individualistic, and misses God's purpose, which is all of us together. We together are called to be a pure and spotless bride. And so going into this, just keep this in mind. You're going to have to, for what he's about to say, Yaakov loves the church. He loves the church. And what is said comes out of a place of deep emotion and passion. His ardor for the assembly gets amped. All right, His fervor for the fellowship gets fired up in these next few verses and the spring of his passion is the love of God chapter 4 verse 1 what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members you lust and do not have you commit murder you are envious and cannot obtain you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures you adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God this is a serious corner he has just turned I mean we just came out of talking about wisdom you know how nice was that and, and he, t- he took some shots back in chapter 3 against false teachers. But you know, yeah, false teachers, we're all opposed to them. But now he's aiming at the fellowship. At Christians receiving this letter. And he is on the attack. And these are serious words and deep, serious language. You adulteresses? Isn't that passionate? So you don't read that as, well, that's very judgmental of him. No, it's passionate. This is a broken heart, crying out. It's not a generic swipe on faceless book. It's not a tantrum of tweets, and it's certainly not a hostile, self-indulgent book tour, but let's not go there. It is disciplinary correction that comes from the heart of one who loves deeply. 
He is in the position here of a loving parent. And again, he's addressing the entire assembly of the church, not individual Christians, not independent believers. He's talking to everyone. And he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? And he says, you wage war. You can murder or envious. You cannot obtain. Man, I, I read this stuff and I think, hold on. If there is peace anywhere, shouldn't it be in the church? How can he even be saying these things? You know, it's a little embarrassing. We don't want the world to hear about our dirty laundry. And yet there's four verses of it right there. These things, were they going on in the early first century church? Yes, they were. We think, oh, if we could only be the first century church. (laughs) Or perhaps we could answer that, well, in many ways we are. (laughs) These things were going on then. These issues, these problems, these conflicts. And you got to wonder why, as the world asks the question, why do you Christians argue and fight and bicker? You hypocrites. You sit here and you talk about wisdom from above being pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits and unwavering and without hypocrisy. And then you yell at each other and argue and kick people out of your churches and divide fellowships. The world sees it all. And we do too. Man, how can you talk about the things that he's just talked about? And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace and then say, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? It's a complete 180 degree turn. What a contrast here. Now, let's point this out and be clear about this. Some translations, if you're reading, for example, the NIV translation tonight, or you're looking at some other translations, it says, is not the source of your pleasures, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war within you. Some translations say, use the word within. It is not within. That's an incorrect translation. I'll give you the exact word there. It is melos, which means body parts. Body parts? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your body parts or limbs or literally someone who is part of a larger unit? He's talking to the church. Now, yes, we all have war within. If you want to talk about the civil war within, go to Romans chapter 7 and 8. And Paul will deal with that. You know, wretched man that I am, I'm fighting back and forth for what I know to be right and what's wrong. But that's not what Yaakov is talking about here. He's not targeting the individual and saying, you got problems, dude. He's talking about the members, the, the melos of the entire church. The body of Christ. This is not just your own internal strivings or, or struggles. This is what he sees going on in the body, the church. And what is the source of our conflicts in churches? Our pleasures. The word there is hedone, where we get hedonism, which is our desires. It's specifically our desire for pleasure. Or in other words, it's my hunger for what I want. It's having things the way I want it to be. Now, hedone is is synonymous with the word that he uses in another place for lust, but it's not exactly lust because it's not just sexual pleasure he's talking about. He's talking about any kind of carnal hunger for what feels good to me. My wants, my desires, my enjoyments, even my agenda. 
And when I want this, and another brother or sister in a fellowship wants this, we war. My pleasure is over here. Your pleasure is over there. And they don't line up. And so we go to war. And these wars, these fights, these squabbles, they erupt among us when our various self-indulgences are not met. And we end up at odds. Now again, this is, this is just, you know, the embarrassing stuff of the church that A, we don't want anyone to know about. B, we really don't like to talk about. And C, we hope no one knows, but everybody does. Spinoza, a 17th century Jewish philosopher said, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love and joy and peace and temperance and charity to all men, should quarrel with rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. An outsider's perspective. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust And do not have, verse 2. You commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. (coughs) Excuse me. Now I read this that way, leaving out the two so's, because it's not an answer. He's not saying you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And he's not saying, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. No, he's giving a list. And it should be read as such, you lust and do not have, you commit murder, you are envious and cannot obtain, you fight and you quarrel. These are all problems going on in the church that he's addressing, or in the churches. And I know that because if you were going to read this in the Greek, every single one of these are indicative verbs, and there are no so's, It's a list of telltale signs of a church with heart trouble. Of a fellowship that has some internal problems in the body. You lust, you murder, you envy, you fight, you quarrel. Man, I read the list and I think, what is wrong with these people? And then I remember the church. And I remember what I've seen in my life. Perhaps you have too. And my purpose tonight is not to bash on the church as much as just to recognize what Yaakov is calling out here and and what he's talking about and just the reality, man, if we're not going to be honest and genuine and authentic, why do we even have Bibles open, right? God deals with truth. And truth isn't always pretty. And the truth is, the church isn't always pretty. And we read these things, again, lust, murder, envy, fighting, quarreling. I mean, it's, it's intense. And you ask, well, was such hand-to-hand combat really happening among early believers? I mean, were they, were they really throwing down in the foyer? Were they coming off the pews at each other? I mean, were they duking it out? Well, what's going on? Probably not exactly that, to that degree. I mean, I guess it's possible. But I don't think he's calling out actual murder on a Sunday morning. He may be. But here's the thing. The key word, and he uses it twice, is translated in verse 1, conflict. In verse 2, it's translated fight. It's the same word. It's makay. And it means strife. 
And more often than not, it's used to describe striving rather than actual physical violence. Although striving can lead to physical violence. People can come out of the pews. People can go after each other. But if you look at the use of this word in the other New Testament passages, it helps us understand it better. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5 says, Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Paul says, We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, that's McKay, and fears within. So Paul's describing there, coming through Macedonia, fierce opposition. Could have been physical. It was certainly verbal as they were getting called out and and shouted down. 2 Timothy 2.23, Paul writes, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce makay, quarrels. So in that case, it's specifically vocal arguments. Okay, uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 9, he writes, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Disputes is McKay. So again, there's verbal contentions. So it's more of a verbal murder perhaps that, that Yaakov is talking about. Not so much physical fights as bickering and, and backbiting and squabbling that we see going on in church fellowships at times. Proverbs 26 Verse 21 says, Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. And we're warned over and over in the New Testament Scriptures, watch out for it. Watch out. In fact, Paul even at one point says, reject the factious man after a second warning. You get someone who's stirring up strife, who's creating division, that's unacceptable in the fellowship. Because it just causes this kind of contention and murderous behavior. And I believe, by the way, such language as murder that Yaakov is using, he's painting the same picture that Jesus did. Where did Jesus do that? Well, Matthew 6, verse 21, You have heard, Jesus said, that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, does that mean you can never be angry? No. In fact, Yaakov is angry here. The Spirit is angry through Yaakov in this writing. At what he sees taking place. Jesus got angry in the temple. The Bible says, be angry, yet do not sin. But when we're angry, that's when we're starting to lose control. And that's the danger. And it can lead to murder. You know how easy it is to wound with words? And to kill with contention? There doesn't have to be blood on the church carpet for a brother or sister to be bleeding internally after a vicious attack. And I believe that's the picture, again, that he is painting and revealing. And then he says... You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And we're right back to hedonism. Hedone. We're we're back to that that sense of, I, I, I ask God for things that I may spend it on things that please me, that make me feel good, that that I can turn around and enjoy. Wait, so so I can't have chocolate? 
You know, and so I have to say no to, to a good cup of coffee in Israel. I gotta tell you, I love the coffee in Israel. I live on the coffee in Israel. I can't have that anymore. I gotta say no to that. I gotta be some kind of ascetic monk. That's not what he's saying. Asking God for things and then spending it on our pleasures. What he's describing here is a volatile mix of lust and envy. It's wanting what others have that you can enjoy it. And it's focused in on the self, which is the key problem with how people come to the letter of Yaakov. Oh, it's about me. Okay, so i got to do this and i got to do that and I shouldn't do this and, and maybe if I stop doing that, it's not about you. It is about us. This letter is for us. And as a matter of fact, our Christianity is not about you and is not about me. It is about us. One of the most significant things, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I can't help it. One of the most significant things that we can learn in following Jesus is to love our neighbor as ourselves. To put others first. It changes everything for us. To deny self-desire, self-pleasure, selfishness in favor of others. And by the way, the enjoyment of that is off the charts. The enjoyment of blessing another person is far greater than blessing self. Try it out. Give someone something for Christmas and then buy yourself something for Christmas. And you find out the giving actually starts to be more and more fun. Not at first. I mean, when I was a young man, I just wanted it for me. But the older I get, the more enjoyment I get just out of watching my kids. I don't really want to open anything for me. It's more fun to watch them. But we want to spend things on ourselves. And this is the attitude of the heart that puts me at odds with others because when I'm focused on me and I'm not getting what I want, but you're getting what you want, we got a problem. Clearly, you are not being unselfish. Clearly, you need to change your behavior. This is why we combat and why we fight and why dissension happens in the church is we're still too focused on ourselves. How do I know? Let me give you another example. If you ever walk out of church on a Sunday morning and say, the worship didn't do it for me today. Now, maybe you would never say that out loud. But in your heart, you're like, eh, it just, it just really wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't feeling it. Or if you, a couple of weeks ago, said, I can't believe they didn't serve muffins for me this morning. <laughs> I came and there were no muffins. How dare they? Don't they know I rely on those muffins when I come in? You know, it's the attitude that, that creeps in that we say, I come here to be served. Where do we get that attitude? How do we develop that? We develop it in a church and in a church culture in America that says, you matter. Now, don't get me wrong, you do. I can't even tell you how much you matter to God. Way beyond any of us could even possibly imagine. Of course you matter. Look at Jesus on the cross. <laughs> you matter. But we spend so much time focusing on ourselves and on our walk and on our spirituality and on our righteousness and on our personal relationship, which is important, that we forget it's not about us. It's about us. It's about all of us together. Which is why Jesus began to build the church in the first place to pull us out of ourselves and put us in 
this, this wonderful, messy family that we could learn what it really means to be together. How do we combat such combative impulses? Because the reality is, the more we focus on ourselves, even when we're focusing positively, as we do so often in Bible study, when we focus so much on ourselves, it's going to create division between ourselves and others. So how do we combat that? How do we fight this? Well, Yaakov is going to give a simple but powerful principle. Really, he'll give two. But there's one key principle, overarching, grand, glorious principle, more important than anything else, and it's huge, and if we can grasp that, if we can do that, then it can cut down or destroy or crush all of the infighting. What is it? We'll get there. But first, first, he does some serious scolding. Again, verse 4, you adulteresses. Now, that is strong language. Adulteresses. But it is absolutely critical to understanding the heart behind this passage. If you read it and go, whoa, that's a little brutal, I'm moving on. And you don't take time to ask, why would he say that? Well, you need to have a a Hebraic mindset. Yaakov is a Jew. He is a Hebrew. His study and his understanding and his comprehension comes of the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament not even having been written yet. And so he's thinking with that Hebrew mindset, and you adulteresses was God's own word through the prophets for whoring Israel. Study the Hebrew Scriptures, and you will see more often than not God referring to Israel as an adulterous, whoring wife. And Yaakov is just... Repeating what he knows, what he sees when people are in conflict with each other and with God. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 20, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Or Ezekiel 16.38, Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. Does that not sound passionate? Jealousy and wrath and and anger. Hey, God's love is passionate. And by the way, I'm glad it is. How boring and how sad would it be to have a God who sat up in the heavens and just went, Are they following me today? Great. What? They, They didn't go to church this morning? Oh well. Whatever. God is not whatever. God is passionate and He feels these things. And who more than any other prophet lived out the adulterous picture personally? Do you know? Hosea. Hosea. Listen to this. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. In fact, why don't you turn there? Turn there and look at it. The prophet Hosea. In the Minor Prophets, if you go about halfway into your Bibles and then go to the right, you'll find Hosea. Right after Daniel, he's the first of of what they call the Twelve, the Minor Prophets. Not that they were minor, but their letters are shorter. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, watch this. Listen to the heart. Look at what God's doing. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea... The Lord said to Hosea, Go, 
take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. This is just one of the most mind-blowing stories of the Older Testament. That God had one of His holy prophets, one of His righteous men, go out, find a prostitute and marry her and have children with her knowing that her behavior, her mindset, her background and her attitude was probably going to leave her to leave him. And she would. And it won't be until back in, uh, further on in chapter 3 where God says, now go get her again because she's already left. Go get her and take her back to yourself. And God through Hosea does a remarkable thing. Not only does He, does he create an opportunity for salvation for this woman whose name is Gomer, she gets to be chased down and loved by the prophet. And chased down again and loved and brought home by the prophet. And we don't even know the end of that story. But she's given every chance to be saved, which is marvelous. But he uses this whole scenario to paint a picture of himself and Israel. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I'll make her like a wilderness. I'll make her like a desert land. I will slay her with thirst, and I'll have no compassion on her children because they're children of harlotry for their mother has played the harlot she who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water my wool and my flax and oil and drink and therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths she will pursue her lovers but she will not overtake them she will seek them but she will not find them and she will say I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. We can just keep reading, but you get the picture? A stunning, passionate picture of an adulterous harlot of a wife who continues to want to run away and who he chases down. If you look in verse 14, watch this. You would think after all that, that'd be it. But no, God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. I was talking with Hillary this morning. and I love when God does this, but I I had marked out these passages to read tonight and talk about Hosea because of this picture of you adulteresses that Yaakov uses. And we were in staff meeting this morning and, and Hillary, not knowing this, said, I had a passage that I was reading this morning and I'd like to read it with you all. But it's kind of the passage of the day for me. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, which is, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You adulteresses. He calls them for what they are. And Yaakov, back, and you can go back there now, Yaakov does the exact same thing. And don't think that he's talking to non-believers. He's talking to believers when he says this. 
Because an adulteress is someone who was in the marriage but then broke from the marriage. Now has, has left it. And he's talking to Christians who are wandering off. And his words are strong. And they are Hebrew Scripture prophetic. And by the way, if the polemic term adulteresses comes off as too harsh or shameful for you tonight to hear, remember this, it was Jesus who said, Matthew twelve thirty nine, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, but no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. That is three days in the belly and resurrected. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father and with His holy angels. You adulteresses. Now, now Yaakov's got my attention. <laughs> you're reading along and you're applying little practical tidbits to your life and suddenly he smacks you in the face with this. You adulteresses. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is a stunning statement. What about being seeker-friendly? What about going out and trying to win the world? Friendship with the world is hostility to God. And you know what? I need to hear this because sometimes I kind of like the world. Now maybe you don't. <laughs> but aren't there things about the world that you kind of have gone, gotten accustomed to or you're okay with or you think is, you know, maybe even a few years ago you would have said, I'd never do that. But then you're like, well, that's alright. Kind of fun. Find pleasure in it. There are things about the world I enjoy. There is an attraction to the dark side. I love the Darth Vader t-shirt. You know? Where he says, come to the dark side. We have cookies. <laughs> There's an attraction to dark things. Now, now we don't like to talk about it or even blatantly admit that. But you know what? When the bad guy gets blown to smithereens on the silver screen, I'm okay with it. <laughs> Violence in the movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, until I realized it was for violence that God flooded the earth. Friendship with the world is hostility to God. You know, what is it that gets your attention or that you kind of like or or is a, a draw to you that is something of the world? Friendship with the world is hostility to God. Jesus said it very clearly in John 3.19, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light. And I've come into the world. I've come into this darkness. And like cockroaches, evil flees and runs for the corners. But we're not talking about the cockroaches. We're talking about the people who have one foot in the light and one foot in the shadows. Because there are things in the shadows that I kind of enjoy. Yaakov would say, we got to change that mentality. 
friendship with the world, it's hostility to God. Now, now he's not saying that, okay, then we should hole up and reject all non-Christian relationships. If we did that, then we would violate Scripture. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. We've got to go. We have to befriend, as it were, sinners. Non-Christians, non-believers. We've got to take truth out of this place. Otherwise, why are we even still here? But get this, understand this. We don't bring the gospel to the world by becoming like the world. We don't pattern ourselves or model ourselves after the world. That's what he means by friendship with the world is hostility to God. Because we tend to emulate our friends. You know, those that I'm closest to, I, I'll notice a, a silly stuff. You know, if I have a good friend and, and he starts to wear flannel shirts, guess what? I'm going to be wearing flannels next season. Just because it looks cool on him. It's got to look cool on me. Right? I think back to my best friend in the fifth grade, David Folker. Dave lived down the street from me. We did everything together. David was into drawing. He was into SeaWorld, dinosaurs, and the music of Kiss. <laughs> Guess what I enjoyed most in fifth and sixth grade? Dinosaurs, drawing, SeaWorld, and Kiss. And much of it was because of his influence on me and then my influence on him. And we tended, we started to look alike and dress alike and act alike and do things alike because that's what friends do. Friendship with the world is hostility to God. Looking like the world, behaving like the world, we become like our friends. It's embracing that which is, oh, go back to verse 15, that which is earthly, natural, demonic. Do we act that way? Do we think that way? Do we employ in the church wisdom that is from below rather than wisdom from above? Have you ever been in a church fellowship where wisdom was from below was the standard of how you did things? I have. Not here. <laughs> but, man, it really makes you stop and realize we are not to do things the way the world does things. We're not to think like the world or act like the world or dress like the world or look like the world because friendship with flesh just makes me more fleshly. And ultimately... It makes me more and more hostile to God. It makes sense. You know, think about it. Why, why is the atheist so hostile to the Christian? The agnostic even. Why is the non-believer so... I mean, at, at times, you see that? They're kind of venomous. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you're a flat earther. What? Where did that come from? Oh, you're a Christian knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. Why, 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 what, what did I do? I'm sorry, did I love you too much? <laughs> did I mention the name of Jesus? Was that offensive to you? I mean, why the hostility? Because friendship with the world is hostile to God, and the world is hostile to God. And Jesus said, hey, listen, if they hate you, remember, they hated me first. That's the world. Why would we want to sidle up to and be friends with that that hates God? So he says, adulteresses and 
He, he uses the word hostility and, and enemy. And in the next verse, he's going to use the word jealousy. Do you see the passion? It's swelling here. And this passion is the context for the toughest or one of the toughest verses in the entire New Testament. And it's verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now again, if you're reading an NIV, you might go, that's not what it says. Well, that's what it says in the NAS, the correct version. I'm kidding. That's what it says in the New American Standard Bible, though. Maybe you're reading a different translation. It's like, wow, it's kind of a different implication here. Okay, let me explain this. Some of your margins or some translations give a completely different reading. Something like this. The spirit which he has made to dwell in us lusts with envy. Which sounds like what he's saying is the human spirit is lustful and sinful, right? But if you read again the NASB, do you not, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us speaks of God and his spirit rather than me and mine. Well, those are two very different things. How can we have such variant readings, especially in a couple of versions here or translations that are pretty common translations? The NIV and NASB have two very different readings. Well, it depends on how you translate the Greek, and that's the problem. Because to be completely honest with you, you could translate it either way and it would be correct. How is that possible? Well, the wording in the Greek is, is just vague enough that you could go either direction. That is, it either refers to God's Spirit within us and His jealousy for us, or, or... It deals with the human spirit within us and our tendency in that spirit to be jealous and envious by nature. So how do we work this one out? And theologians have tried for centuries. Because again, it's a tough verse. Which translation is correct? Well, let me tell you this. First of all, both are true. So I'm actually okay with you translating in either way because the spirit in us is jealous and envious and it is a sin nature problem. But God also puts his Holy Spirit in us and is jealous for us. So either way, it works. Either way, you have a biblical reality that is talked about in many other places. But I want to know which one's right. (laughs) I want the correct translation. Listen, if you want to research this out further... And I encourage you to do so if you you have that in mind and you're not going to be able to sleep until you do this. Well, you're going to have to wait at least two days for Amazon Prime to bring bring you the commentary that I'm going to suggest. But it's Douglas Moo's commentary, just called The Letter of James. It's an outstanding commentary. And he goes into this, pages 188 to 191. He goes into in depth and talks about all the variances and the nuances in the Greek and why he leans toward one direction over another. And it's the direction I lean as well. That said, without getting too overly complicated and and pointing out all these little nuances, I think the NASB really is closest in this situation. It's not because I like the NASB, but I do think it's the closest translation. That is, that Yaakov is referring to God's divine jealousy for His Spirit dwelling in His people. Why? Two quick reasons. Number one, because of how the verse begins with the Scripture. The Scripture. The word is graphe. Listen to it. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? 
And then, in quotes, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, unquote. Okay, first of all, there were no quotes in the Greek language there, so that's put in by the translators too. Secondly, what's in quotes in verse 5, if you're looking at it, cannot be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Or the New. It's just not there. Well, so then, it must be the other translation, right? Well, the other translation can't be found anywhere either. So that phrase, that Greek phrase, is not replicated from somewhere else. You just can't find it. But, but, while not a single Old Testament verse says this exactly, the totality of the Hebrew Scripture does. And that's what Yaakov is saying. Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? The Scripture has defined and described what? God's jealousy. The Scripture, capital script, you know, the Scripture, the whole of Scripture. The word is graphe in the Greek, but here the graphe, and it's used this way in other places. The graphe means the whole Scripture. Do you think the Hebrew Scriptures speak to no avail? Do you think Yaakov says the Hebrew Scriptures speak to no purpose? Think about what we've learned. Think about what it says. What it tells us is that He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. That our God is a jealous God. The book of Exodus, chapter 20, right in the middle of the ten seas. Verse 5, You shall not worship them, that is, idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the father on the children's on the on the children and the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments god says it right out i'm a jealous god and while the word jealousy is used in the hebrew scriptures prior to exodus chapter 20 that's the first time it's used in that um in that writing that is in that hebrew writing it's written differently there than anywhere else and it's the first time it's written that way. And every time it's written that way after that, uh, it pretty much is referring to the jealousy of God. Exodus 34.14 goes even further. You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. What does that mean? Well, to say His name is jealous is to say His very nature is jealous. Well, I don't think I like that. You know what? I like that my wife is jealous for me. I want her to be. Uh, I mean, I do. Maybe you don't. But I, I, I want my wife to be very clear with me that she desires that I not date other women. I want her to be jealous of my attention. That's a good thing. That's passion. And the jealousy of God is not some strange evil that lurks about in the Holy Spirit. No, it's beautiful. It's passion. I'm jealous for you. I want all of you. God would say, my name is jealous because I made you and I want you for myself. By the way, when he has us for himself, it is so good for us. It is the place to be. The fervent, passionate 
righteous jealousy of God is thematic of His grace and of His love throughout the Scripture. And so because of that, the whole context here, having called out them as adulteresses and referring to jealousy and talking about, you know, friendship with the world is hostility to God. Now he comes to this verse and suddenly says he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us fits perfectly with the Scriptures and secondly the context. What Yaakov is trying to get across, he is warning against the very same spiritual adultery that happened in Israel and he's seeing it in the fledgling church and he's saying, no, no, you adulteresses. God is still jealous for you. He passionately desires you. And so here at the heart of the letter, from dealing with persecution, partiality and faith and wisdom and lust and conflict, Yaakov has been laying down the difference through the whole letter between a church that espouses itself to the world and a church that embraces God. Which one are we going to be? What body am I going to be a member of? That which embraces all things God or that which looks an awful lot like the very world that we claim not to be like. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 says something. It says that our Lord, the Lord your God, is a consuming fire. Repeated in Hebrews 12, 24. But in Deuteronomy it finishes the sentence saying, A jealous God. He's jealous for you personally. Yes, Carrie, He's jealous for you. But you know what? He's jealous for us together. He is jealous for His body. He is jealous for His Spirit, which is put where? On the entire body of the church. He's jealous for us. Now you might say, wow, with such a righteous God, whose jealousy burns like a fire, what hope do we have? I mean, really... What hope do we have to live up to His righteous expectations of absolute perfect faithfulness? Have you been perfectly faithful this year? Just look back over one year. Have you been perfectly faithful to the Lord this year? And if you say you have, oh bro, give me some room because lightning could strike. We all know that we struggle with faithfulness. Sometimes to great degrees, sometimes to small degrees, but it doesn't make any difference. If we're not flawlessly faithful... If we're not absolutely righteous and perfect, this jealous, raging fire of a God could just crush us. What hope do we have? Verse 6. But He gives a greater grace. Greater than what? Greater than His jealousy. Greater than my failure. Greater than my adultery. He gives a greater grace. For by grace you have been saved, and that not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And by the way, right here in the middle of the heart of the letter of Yaakov, that everyone has tried to say, oh, he's the works guy, he gives a greater grace. And Yaakov reminds us again, it is the grace of God that saves us. It is the grace of God that we put our faith in that then brings about the works. Our works. Always in response to His great grace. And I love what Augustine says literally about this verse. He gives a greater grace. Augustine said, God gives what God demands. I demand that you be perfect. 
and I'll make you perfect. I demand that you be righteous, and I'll make you righteous. I demand that you know me, and Jesus came into the world. What he demands, he gives. What he gives, he demands. So we're not left out there trying to respond. Impossible to do so. We can't respond, but he gives us a greater grace so that we can. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34 Therefore, since He gives a greater grace... Now listen, we're getting into the solution to overcoming all conflicts and contentions and problems in the church. We're almost there. But the sustaining grace of God is realized and enjoyed and experienced only by those who in humility understand their need for that grace. He gives a greater grace, therefore, therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and it's a reminder that grace is yours for the taking, but the only way to receive it is humbly. Because to receive the grace of God requires that I recognize I need it. That I am a a failure. That I am faithless. That I am you adulteresses. That he's not talking to some people back in the first century, but when he calls out you adulteresses in verse 4, he's talking to me. And without the grace of God, I would be lost. And so I have to receive his grace in humility. By the way, Peter hardly re- re- um, agrees with his contemporary Yaakov. He said in 1 Peter 5, 5, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34 again. That is also quoted by Paul. And the reason, I mean, it's quoted so much that we think the reason for the many quotations is that it was, it was part of a first century um, phrase. Or a first century realization. I'll, I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But Peter said, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Now we're getting close to the answer to contentions. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I love this verse. First of all, submit to God is not like the forced submission of Islam. Submit or die. No, the word submission here, hupotasso, is a willing subjection of self to another. I give myself to you. A husband would... Hupotasso, he would willingly give himself to his wife, and the wife would willingly give herself to her husband in that marriage relationship. Till death do us part, there's this willing giving of self. That's what the word means. Submit to God. Willingly give yourself to God. You choose. You decide if you're going to do it. But it's critical that you submit to God. And listen. Willing submission. All conflict... All conflict comes of being in conflict with God. What do you mean? Conflict in a marriage? Someone's in conflict with God. Conflict in a friendship? Someone has turned a deaf ear to the Lord. Conflict in the church? Someone is ignoring His Spirit who dwells within each of us, His Spirit who unites us 
does not divide us. His Holy Spirit, who's described in Psalm 133, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edges of his robe. The precious oil is the picture, the anointing oil throughout the Hebrew Scriptures of the Holy Spirit, who anoints us for unity. So that, Ephesians 4.3, we would be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So submit to God. Willingly give yourselves to God. Not just yourself individually, but ourselves as a church. As a fellowship of believers, we together submit to God. And you know how you do that? By unity. The very unity of the Spirit among us is our submission, if you will, to God. And he says, along with that, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So submit to God and resist the devil. I love that phrase because it is a basic and yet powerful principle. If you would feel like you're under assault or under attack or or demons are coming after you or Satan's really got it in for you this day. My mother-in-law said that just just yesterday. She said, where where was she at, Cheryl? Do you remember? Was she at the post office or something? Okay, she was dealing with people on the... I thought she was at the post office, which, you know, is the pit of hell. But she wasn't. She, I'm kidding. But she was dealing... She's had a really frustrating day, and I walked in the door, and she goes, I'll tell you what, Satan has had it in for me all day long. And I went, really? Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. See, I just read this. It's perfect. Resist the devil, and he'll... What, is that? what does that mean? Hey, cowards run from a fight. Terrorists are only terrorists as long as they can intimidate you. And that is Satan. Bullies flee from resistance. Resist the devil. He is only effective as long as he can intimidate. Or as long as he can lure you. And the moment you recognize that he is either attacking or tempting in any way, resist. And the moment you resist, guess what he does? Oh, I'm out of here. He'll flee from you. I love that. And again, Yaakov's wording is reflected by Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in the faith. Now, I'm, I point out Peter a couple of times here. Because both Yaakov and Peter seem to be referring to two things. And, and in 1 Peter 5, Peter does this, both of these things, just like Yaakov does here right in chapter 4 of his letter. Two specific things here. One is that you resist the devil. The other, what was that you humble yourself. And it's thought because of this connection between Peter and Yaakov that in the first century, this was a recipe for repentance. That they would say, humble yourself and resist the devil. Or resist the devil and humble yourself. That this was a phrase that was used often in the church and meant to repent. But how can anyone really resist the evil one? And here's the big answer to the whole thing tonight. Here's where conflict gets crushed. You can only really resist the devil by being in the presence of God. You want to resist the devil? 
be in the presence of God. You want to stop the fighting and the contention? You want to know what the answer to every single human conflict is? Verse 8, draw near to God. That's the whole letter in a nutshell right there. This is, in my opinion, the key verse of the letter of Yaakov. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. I mean, that's it. Every human conflict, a husband and a wife are duking it out, going at it. No, 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 Draw near to God and there is peace. In a friendship, together, rather than arguing, say, okay, here's our rule. Uh, before we can argue, we have to sing a worship song together. That would change everything. In church, in fellowship, in leadership. And our leadership has experienced this. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And you know what happens to contention and strife? It is the best way to resist the devil who causes that strife in the first place. Draw near to God. This stands as one of my favorite psalms, not even written by David. It was Asaph who wrote it. It's Psalm 73, verse 28, where he says, Behold... Those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, and here's the phrase, the nearness of God is my good. There's your pleasure right there. You war with each other because you want want whatever you don't have to spend on your pleasures. Well, let this be our pleasure. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And by the way, there's your evangelism. I draw near to God and by drawing near to God and loving God and and being like God and pursuing Him, then I become able to tell people about Him. Rather than spending so much time with my friend the world that I really can't describe Him at all. Draw near to God. So when I do that, when I come close to Jesus... Honestly, He's all I want to be. How many times do you walk out of here? This happens to me all the time. I walk out on a Sunday morning thinking about Jesus and I just want to be like Him. I want to treat my family like Him. I want to treat my friends like Him. I want to think like Him and act like Him and and breathe and walk in this world like I just want to be like Jesus. Draw near to God. Man, when we do that, forgiveness flows out of us like the blood at Calvary. Wisdom comes down from above. The fruit of the Spirit is produced and cultivated in me. And above all else, when I draw near to God, I both know and can share the love of God. Draw near to God. It crushes conflict. Verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Another invective, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So now, so far, we've been called adulteresses, sinners, and double-minded. Are you taking it okay? And then he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Well, how in the world can I rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice and do what Yaakov is telling me to do right here. Come back Sunday on that one. Because we're going to talk about those three verses in a lovely little teaching I've entitled, Misery. Verse 11. (laughs) Verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you, Yaakov. He's back to brethren. Most of the time in the letter, Yaakov calls these people brethren or beloved brethren. That's, that's how he feels. That's his heart. So adulteresses and sinners and double-minded, when he's calling out these words, it is attention-getting, and it does speak of the passionate love of God saying, don't be the adulteress. Don't be the sinner. Don't be double-minded. Brethren, do not speak out against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law. And judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. You know his name, it is Jesus Christ. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What law is Yaakov onto here? Well, we've already called it out. It's the royal law. This is the big picture law for Yaakov. This is the law of liberty, or we might say it's the law of love. And that's why the answer to diffusing all conflict and quarrels and wars among people is first draw near to God. Draw near to God. As John wrote in 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. So draw near to God, and then secondly, draw near to each other. Draw near to one another. Because your neighbor, when he says, do not speak against one another, brethren... When he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Your neighbor is sitting right next to you tonight. Your neighbor is right here. Your neighbor is also your brethren, your your sisters. Brothers and sisters. This teaching is for the church. Yaakov is speaking to the church. And what he says here is, don't judge the law, do it. Just do the law. What law? The perfect law? The law of Moton? Yes, the perfect law. The law of God. The law of love. Do it. Don't sit there like some pompous, dogmatic theologian judging and questioning and challenging the royal law. Well, I'm not sure that it says this, but maybe it says that. I don't know. We can debate this. No, no. Don't judge it. Just do it. Don't judge the Scriptures. Just do them. And Jesus said, Matthew 22, 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Draw near to God. And this is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Draw near to one another. Love God. Love His people. And we will see conflict dramatically decrease in all our relationships. Draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us draw near to You. I thank You for these words so challenging and and truly, Lord, if we don't pause to think about the passionate, even jealous love that You have for Your church and for Your people, then we would be offended at some of this language. We'd be turned off the moment 
we feel like we're being called adulteresses or, or, or sinners or double-minded. And yet, Lord, when we know it comes from a heart that is just beating with love, then we recognize, Oh Lord, You wouldn't say such things if You didn't want us to draw near. Father, I thank You tonight that, that the most amazing aspect of our drawing near to You is that You draw near to us. Thank You for the promise that You will draw near and that You don't leave us hanging out to dry. Oh Father, bring us to You and come to us Your people. Purify us, make us spotless as You have promised to do. And we just declare, Lord, once again, that we love You and we want to be like You. And we, we deny friendship with the world. May we instead have this passionate, deep, abiding love relationship with You. May that characterize this fellowship and Your church, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.